we have been in First John for about the last six weeks. Uh, we were in John's Gospel for the first uh, half or two thirds of this year, and uh, John's Gospel. The focus is, or the theme is, found in John chapter twenty, verse uh, thirty or thirty-one, uh, where he says that. He's written these things so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. Now in 1 John, he's teaching you how to live out that life. He's teaching us how to live out that life. So we're going to live what we believe. Um, And there's been a lot of uh, good content here. I want to say that in reading John's gospel um, and his letter, John is more of an elliptical thinker rather than a linear thinker. Do you know the difference between these two concepts? Right? The the linear thinker is the logical A to B to C to D, right? The elliptical thinker, right? And Paul does this sometimes too, although Paul is very logical in his presentation, especially reading Romans, you'll understand that. But Paul, when he is uh, writing his letter, he's actually dictating them to a secretary or an amanuensis. And uh, sometimes he runs off on uh, various quote-unquote rabbit trails, talking about uh, themes that obviously the Holy Spirit has led him to talk about, but nonetheless not following precisely the A to B to C to D. But if you follow Paul's arguments in his letters overall, you'll see that he's very much a linear thinker. Man, John's elliptical, all right? I've had... John has always been my favorite uh, disciple. Uh, Maybe you don't have a favorite disciple. He's my favorite Bible character, period. I really, really like this guy. Um, He was uh, the closest to Jesus. Now, Jesus loves all of us, but uh, just like you have people in your life that you're closer to, and it doesn't mean that you necessarily love them more, but there is a closer bond that's there. Um, so uh, John has this relationship with Jesus that you know I want to have. But as I'm reading his material, he's so uh, condensed, dense, deep, right? And as I read First John, his thinking is elliptical. He comes you know, this direction, and then he goes back here, and then he comes this direction, and then he goes back here, you know, elliptical, meaning he's kind of going like this, all right? Um, so John talks a lot about love in First John. Uh, really, John develops this, uh, this Greek word agape more than anybody else. You've heard the word agape. Have you heard the word agape, right? Um, this is a word, the noun version of this, all right? Agapao is the verb, and, you know, just like English, it's spelled in a variety of ways depending upon its usage, its, its tense, and uh, so forth. But agape, the word that we've become familiar with, is really only used in all of Greek literature. It's only used in the Bible. Did you know that? Agape is only used in the Bible. It's used in the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament known as the Septuagint. Um, It's used to translate the Hebrew word ahava. But in the New Testament, it is developed into this concept of God's kind of love. And John, I think, is a uh, perhaps the best example of that, right? In John's gospel, he never uses his name, but what does he does refer to himself on a number of occasions, beginning in chapter 13? What does John, uh, what is the designation or what does he say to refer to himself? The disciple what? 
the disciple whom Jesus loved. And so therefore, John is called the beloved disciple. What a great idea, right? To be, to be thought of as Jesus' friend, to be thought of as beloved. Um, and so in his old age, uh, so John wrote the gospel of John as he was inspired to do by the Holy Spirit. John wrote 1 John. Um, I do not believe that the apostle John wrote 2nd and 3rd John. There was another John called John the Elder that probably wrote those. But he also was the one, that is this John, John the beloved disciple, was the one who was exiled on the island of Patmos and wrote uh, the, the, what he received as uh, the apocalypse or what we call revelation, the revelation to John. So he wrote these letters, but long after he, he wasn't martyred for his faith, all of the other apostles were martyred for their faith. John lived to an old age and died of old age, all right? Um, he spent his final days as the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Um, your, your book of Ephesians in your Bible is about uh, or uh, is ostensibly written to the, that particular church. And Ephesus is in Asia Minor, uh, which is today Turkey. And you can still go and visit the ruins of Ephesus today, but that's where John was the pastor. But long after he became, I guess you would call, call him the pastor emeritus, and he was no longer writing and no longer preaching sermons. Church history says that John would sit, John would sit at the door of his church and rock back and forth, and as people came into the church, he would say this over and over, little children love one another. Little children love one another. Little children love one another. See, when you boil it all down in John's life, it's about love. All of these other values and ideas and doctrines and theological points. And in the end, it's what the apostle Paul wrote in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter, he said, now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So as I was considering how to continue through John's letter, um, I have gone verse by verse at times. I've done a bit of a theme at times, but I'm going to hit this theme of love and it's actually two passages um, it's 1 John 3, 11 through 18. Actually, three passages, two chapters. 1 John 3, 11 through 18, and then chapter 4, 7 through 12, and then 4, 16 through 21. And actually, it actually goes all the way to chapter 5, verse 1. So I'm going to read those verses. Um, and if you have your own copy of Scripture, you can join me. So once again, this first passage is uh, 1 John 3, 11 through 18, right? So John writes, for this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we are to love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. Remember, Cain killed Abel, Genesis chapter four. Um, and for what reason did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers and sisters, of the, if the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. And this adds sisters all the time. But I want to say this over and over. New, modern translations will always add sisters because they don't want you to think that, you know, the Bible is patriarchal and sexist and all these other things. What you need to understand is Christianity has always been inclusive with with women, women were considered part of the brothers. That was just the way they thought, okay? But they just used that single term. 
We know we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. The one who does not love remains in death. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. We know love by this, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers and sisters. But whoever has worldly goods and sees his brother or sister in need and closes his heart against him, how does the love of God remain in him? Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Boy, that one bears remembering. Let us not love in word or tongue with just lip service, but in deed and truth. All right, now we're going to skip to chapter 4, verses 7 through 12. And he hits the same thing. This is why I said he's elliptical, right? He, he goes and he talks a lot about love. And then he goes in a, you know, a, a, a tangential direction, right? Similar direction, but off on a tangent. And then he comes back around to love in 4 verse 7. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God. And everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God because God is love. It's, and you just see, John repeats himself, and then he adds things to what he has previously said, okay? So this is where we get that, uh, that idea, that, that verse, that phrase from this verse, 1 John 4, 8, that God is love. God is what? Right. So the whole verse is the one who does not love does not what? Does not know God because God is love. By this, the love of God was revealed in us that God has sent his only son into the world so that we may live through him. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. That's another one uh, worthy of memorization. In this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as the propitiation or the atoning sacrifice for our sins. I memorized a lot of these uh, back in the day, and I'm very glad that I did. They, uh, memorizing the word can shape your thinking for generations, years to come. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Boy, he just keeps hitting that theme. No one has ever seen God. He's already said that in John chapter one. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God who's in the bosom of the Father, he has revealed him. Now here he says it again. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another... God remains in us and his love is, is perfected in us. By this, we know that we remain in him and he in us because he has given us of his spirit, right? Now we're going to jump down to 16. Um, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love. He repeats it again. He said it in 1 John 4, 4, 8. Now he says it again. God is love. And the one who remains in love remains in God. And God remains in him. By, by this, love is perfected with us so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, we also are in this world. Here's another good one for memorization. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. If you find yourself in panic mode sometimes, right? If you find yourself afraid and you don't even know why, resting in God's love can help you to understand that there's no need to fear because Christ died for you, God loves you, and he has you, and he's taking care of you, right? Um yeah, there is no fear in love, but perfect love drives out fear. Okay, I memorized it, casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment. Yeah, you're tormented when you're afraid, right? I mean, I could give testimony of that. 
I went through a period of my life when I was just, uh, I was sixth through about eighth grade. I was just afraid every day. It was just, it was like being tortured, okay? He says, fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Boy, that's, there's another good one. We love because he first loved us, right? We don't have the resources to love uh, the way God wants us to love. We love because he first loved us. If someone says, I love God, and yet hates his brother or sister, he is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother or sister, who he has seen, cannot love God, whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. You see how he just hammers this theme over and over and over. He's saying the same thing, just in a little bit different way. This is why this whole sermon is just gonna be on love, and I'm gonna cover a bunch of these verses, but not all of them. And finally, um, verse 21 and then 5-1, and this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God must also love his brother and sister. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ has been born of God, and everyone who loves the Father loves the child born to him. All right? Um, okay, so I'm a little backward from other people. I wear glasses so I can see you. <laughs> I can read without my glasses just fine. I don't have to put glasses on in order to read. So that's why I take them off uh, to read. Um, I do a series. I used to do it every year when I was in youth ministry, and I have done it every other year here um, on love. I call it the four loves, and it comes from uh, the, the inspiration for that series that I've been teaching for 30 years uh, comes from C.S. Lewis's book of the same name. C.S. Lewis gave me uh, the best definition of love. Uh, he doesn't say love is this precisely, but as he's talking about love, uh, he uses this definition. He says, love is acting in the best interest of the beloved. Beloved just means the person you choose to love, okay? So love is doing what? Acting in the best interest of the beloved. Listen, you need to understand something. You don't even have to like somebody to love them. Do you realize that? You just spent a bunch of time with your relatives, didn't you? <laughs> and I know you love them. But I bet there are even times when you love your kids, you'd give your life for them, but I bet there's times when you don't really like them, all right? And if you do, you're perfect. That's awesome, okay? Um, all right, so... I guess I'm gonna, I have a lot of stuff here and it's, I can't keep you here all day. Like I said, I have a whole series on this. We're going we're gonna to just take a look at um, a bunch of these verses that John has here, okay? And um, we're going to try to learn what he has for us, right? The first thing that I want to... I should have just used my phone. My word. <laughs> I like this Bible though. Uh, the first thing I want to look at is um, where he talks about uh, Cain and Abel, right? Uh, verse 12, um, well, 11 and 12, the message we have heard from the beginning is that we're to love one another, not as Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And then he says, and why, what reason did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil, but his brothers were righteous. Well, what was evil about Cain's deeds? Obviously, murdering his brother, but what would you say is the motive for Cain killing Abel? Do you know the story well enough? Jealousy. Yeah. Do you know 
Or have you observed or considered that the reason Jesus was crucified from an earthly perspective is because the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious leaders were what? They were jealous of him. Man, Jesus was drawing crowds. He was working miracles. And he didn't go to their schools. And he didn't care what they thought of him. They were jealous of him, all right? So number one in my outline today, jealousy drives out love and divides brothers, right? Um, I was considering this, and I think jealousy could be considered uh, justice gone wrong. In other words, I feel it is unfair that another person has something that I do not. So I want to see them disgraced or destroyed. That's why Cain killed Abel. Um, Jealousy drove the Pharisees to kill Jesus. Love, however, motivates me to appreciate the success of another person. Um, I used to do uh, um, a, uh, a youth camp. This is back when I was in the colony. And um, I would take kids to this, uh, this youth camp. It was called Super Summer. And they divided the teenagers up into these different schools based on their age. And there, there would be a, a teacher or teaching couple. And this couple that uh, I was, uh, was affiliated with for a couple of years, I can't remember the, the school they were with. Uh, they, they made colors for the schools, the green school, the yellow school, all this. But anyway, they, they taught these kids some really, really valuable biblical lessons. And one of the concepts that they taught that I've tried to share various times, how many of you are competitive? Okay, how many of you have competitive kids? Right? Here's what you should teach them. Be a double winner. What did I just say? What that means is you should compete hard. You shouldn't let off. Now, you know, if, you know, let's just take, you know, Shiloh and Asher as an example, okay? Um, Asher's, how much older than Shiloh was he? Like four years, three years? Three and a half years, okay? But, you know, he's like, he's a lot bigger than his brother, Uh, If you're, you know, playing with your brother, playing sports with your brother, and there's that much age difference and size difference, you don't just knock the tar out of them because you're that much bigger, okay? But you do your best. You don't just give up and give in and let them win all the time, right? Or there's no competition there. You need to give them some competition. Um, I know when Craig was younger, he didn't like it if you let him win. It ticked him off. He wanted to compete, right? Craig was always very competitive. Um, Being competitive and doing your best is not a bad thing, but here's where it gets bad. It gets bad when you think you've got to destroy the opposition, all right? I have a real problem when I see two individuals, let's say it's a, you know, it's a UFC match, okay? Or or a tennis match or, um, you know, whatever. Or two teams play. And one team beats the other team or one uh, um, uh, opponent, uh, one competitor beats the other competitor. And then they get up there and badmouth the competitor. Oh, they're nothing. They're nothing. So what you're telling me is you're not very good at what you do because you beat somebody that's nothing. Is that it? No, what you want is you want them to play their best and you play your best. And if they win, be a double winner, which means what? Celebrate their victory. Go over and congratulate them. 
See, I like, um, by and large, I'm not a big fan of the UFC because it doesn't have good martial spirit. It's a bunch of cocky guys uh, running their mouths and, and beating the tar out of each other. But there are competitors or have been within the UFC that had the proper attitude and, and uh, proper spirit. Uh, one of them, I think he's too old to be competing now, um, but was a fellow named Lyoto Machida, right? And he... He was trained by his father, who was Japanese, who was a Shotokan uh, stylist, very traditional martial arts style, uh, started by Funakoshi Gichin. And he would always bow. And when he knocked somebody out, he would bow, right? It's, that's his way of expressing being a double winner, man. Okay, I beat you. But that doesn't mean I want to destroy you. This doesn't mean I want to hurt you. And then if you get beat, I love it when I see these guys that will go over and congratulate the other guy and, you know, bloody face and whatever and just, you know, giving a, a big hug. And they're like, yeah, man, we competed. We did our best. Be a double winner. Jealousy is, it's destructive, okay? I've spent too much time on that. All right. Um, number two, without love, you're spiritually dead. That's verse 14. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers and sisters. The one who does not love remains in death. Yeah. So last week I talked about the fact Jesus said that um, because of lawlessness, most men's love, most people's love will grow cold. When you are not a principled person, right? When you're just living by your own feelings, following your own truth, following your heart, whatever, then you're very selfish. And selfishness kills love because love is inherently unselfish, right? So that's what he says. He says, you're spiritually dead if you don't love. And then verse 15, um, hate is equated to murder. Everyone who hates his brother or sister is a murderer. That's what he said. And you know that no murderer has eternal life remaining in him. Well, Jesus taught this, right? Um, he taught us not to be angry with our brothers. So you may get angry at somebody because they've done something that offended you, right? But anger does not achieve the righteousness of God. That's what James said, Jesus' half-brother, okay? Um, and then Paul said, be angry, as in be angry at sin, but do not sin. Be angry and sin not, and don't let the sun go down on your anger. So again, you know, if you are, uh, uh, you know, working, you're working with young people, for, uh, for example, right? And you encounter a young person that does something that is wrong, that does something that is offensive, and it angers you that they have done that, and you express that anger, but you don't let that anger become destructive. You let that anger be at the crime, not the person who is affiliating themselves with the crime, as we would say, okay? Um, Jesus taught this when he warned us not to be angry. Remember this from the Sermon on the Mount. Um, this, is, um, this is Jesus in Matthew chapter five, verses 21 and 22. He said, you've, you've heard it said, you shall not murder, right? That's from the Ten Commandments. Thou shalt not murder. And whoever commits murder shall be answerable to the court. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother shall be answerable to the court. And whoever says to his brother, you good for nothing, right? You empty head, that's what it literally means, shall be answerable, answerable to the Supreme Court. And whoever says, you fool, 
Do you know what the, the Greek word for fool is, by the way? You probably don't, but that's okay. I'm going to tell you. It's moros. Uh-huh. That's where we get the word moron. Been online lately? Been on social media lately? Had an opinion that's not approved by a certain group of people? And they call you what? Yeah. Oh, but you would never call somebody that, would you? You would not be found dead calling someone a moron. Because Jesus said, if you call him a moron, you'll be guilty enough to go into the fiery hell. I think we need to listen to Jesus, don't you? If you hate, you don't have Christ living in you and you don't have eternal life. That's what John is teaching us. Um, Love isn't talk. It motivates me to take action, right? Do not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. Just do it. That's what love is all about. Um, It motivates me to lay down my life for a brother in Christ. That's what he says in in chapter three, verse 16. It motivates me to give to a brother in need. I don't just say be warm, be filled, and be on your way. If I have the ability to help somebody, then I help somebody, okay? Um, And uh, number five, love proves that I have been born of God. So now we go to verse seven. The proof that I have a relationship with Jesus is not a feeling that I have. This is what he says, Beloved, let's love one another. Let us love one another. For love is from God, and everyone who loves has been born of God and knows God. Someone who genuinely loves has been born of God and knows God. Okay? Um, So love motivates me to lay down my life for a brother in Christ. That's what he says in verse 316. So I think Craig likes to take this angle quite a bit when he preaches on love, that love is sacrifice. Love is sacrificial. Um, If you're not willing to sacrifice your time to allow your talent to be used for somebody else without profit for you, see, if you're always, if you're always trying to gauge or consider, ah, yeah, well, what's in it for me? What am I getting out of this? That's not love, right? That's commerce. That's not love. That's selfishness. When you love, you simply act in the best interest of the other person to help them, to bless them, right? And this goes all the way to the point of uh, being willing to lay down your life. Remember what he said in chapter three, verse 16, um, We know love by this, that he, that is Jesus, laid down his life for us. And what? We ought to lay down our life, our lives, or our life, your life, for the brothers and sisters. Okay? Um, Love proves that I've been born of God. And then next, if you do not love, you do not know God. And that's the verse that says God is love, right? If you do not love, you do not know God. Whatever your concept of deity is, whether you pray, whether you go to church, whether you read the Bible, if you don't love, you don't know God. That's how far John takes it. And if you go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13, the love chapter I mean, that's where the Apostle Paul tells you that all these things that you would do, all of these wonderful religious things, maybe even, you know, offering up your body as a sacrifice, it's possible to just, to to be sacrificial, but to do that to glorify yourself, right? Um, You know, I, I don't, I, it's hard for me to imagine that I was ever like this, but I can, I can remember back to being a kid and thinking, well, you know what? If I died, that'd show them, right? 
Then they'd feel sorry. Then they'd feel bad. You know what that is? That's perverse. Uh, that's childish thinking, but that's, that's saying, uh, you know, I value being glorified. I value my own pride, even among, you know, even uh, above my own earthly life. I'm not doing that to help somebody. I want to die so that they will feel bad about me, right? Feel bad about what they've done to me. I think that that's this idea that we're talking about here, right? And then in the same verse, if you do not love, you do not know God, uh, that's where we first encounter this idea that God is love. And as we saw when I was reading through it, you re-encounter it in verse 16. So God himself is love. There are a lot of other attributes, all right? related to God, all right? He's powerful, he's glorious, but this doesn't say he's loving. He is loving, but that's not what this says. It says God is love, which means God's character, God's nature defines love, right? Um, I love this quote. This is from B.F. Westcott. He says, God himself is love. The creation and preservation of the world are, in essence, a continuous manifestation of his love. Why do you exist? Because God is love. God didn't create you because he needed you. He created you because he chose to. He created the universe because he chose to. He created the universe so that it was a result in a planet called Earth with people who are sitting here in this room that he could love and who, if they chose to, could love him back. It's all about love, my friend. Um, now, Christ, uh, God's nature defines love. Christ's sacrifice demonstrates love. You want to know what love looks like? Look at the cross, right? You want to know whether God loves you? It's not a feeling that you have. Look at the cross. Jesus was willing to go all the way to the cross because God loves you and because God loves me. Now, some people get this confused, right? This is a grammatical problem, but it's a bigger problem than that. God is love does not mean love is God. You do realize they're not the same thing, right? Love is not God. That's idolatry. And we see it today. It's what is behind the kind of corrupted compassion that we see today, wherein people are encouraged, even celebrated, for following a path of perversion and self-destruction, right? There's just, well, you know, that's, that's, that's their choice, and that's what the way they want to be. But what happens if their choice, their sexual choice, their drug choice is destructive, is obviously destructive to themselves and other people? then your compassion is corrupt, okay? That's not God's love because the Apostle Paul says very clearly, love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but it rejoices with the truth. That's 1 Corinthians 13, 6. So we've got to believe God's truth, live rightly, and share in love, right? We need to share the truth in love. So if I'm just, you know, I'm, I want to be right, I want to prove everybody else wrong, then I argue um, and, you know, I demonstrate or I protest or whatever I do, but all I want to do is prove myself right. And I may be right. I may be correct. I may be accurate. I may have the truth, but I can be dead right because I'm not sharing the truth in love. I'm not sharing the truth with this idea that I want to act in that person's best benefit. And right now, if they're not receptive, it may not be in their best benefit for me to even be talking to them. 
right? They may be in the wrong, but that doesn't mean I'm the right person to tell them that. There's plenty of instances where, you know, uh, there's been a situation where, okay, I, I need to make this right with this person, uh, you know, and I, I don't know how to do this. Um, and I had to just wait. I had to wait until the time was right. And you say, well, how do you know? Man, all you can do is pray through it. And then you just kind of stick your toe in the water and test it out. Pray through it, stick your toe in the water and test it out, right? I've got somebody in my life right now that's really close to me. It's a, it's, it's a relative, but closest that you can imagine. And uh, this person won't even talk to me. I, I don't even know how to make whatever went wrong right, all right? I've got to be able to talk to that person in order to accomplish that goal. But, you know, you may think, well, no, I just need to go over to their house and I need to sit down and we need to, but not if they're not receptive. You see that you may do more harm than good. You've got to pray through that. You've got to, you've got to have the right time. But don't let that be an excuse for you just being selfish and not wanting to go through all the pain of making the necessary apology when you could make the, uh, the apology, okay? So we've got to believe God's truth, live rightly, and share in love. And I love and have the resources to love because he first loved me, right? Um, so... If you receive God's love and you remain in Christ, then you're going to be able to love others as God has loved you. What did Jesus say? Right? He said, a new commandment I give unto you. This is in John's gospel. Right? Uh, he repeats this in John 13, 34, and then again in John 15. Jesus said, a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. How? Even as I have loved you. Well, love is not a new commandment. That's not the new part of the commandment. Right? Love your neighbor as yourself is as old as Leviticus. Okay? Love God with all you are is as old as Deuteronomy chapter 6. No. The new commandment is a, it's a new way of understanding and being empowered to love. Previously, it was love others as you love yourself. And that led people back in my day to say, well, you can't love anybody else if you don't love yourself. Well, that's really not true, okay? And it's no longer the best measure of how I, I'm to love other people, right? Loving another person as I love myself means, you know, do I take care of myself? Well, some of you do, maybe some of you don't. Some of you don't have, uh, you know, uh, good self-care, good self-esteem and all these sorts of things. But the way to love is to get to know God. The way to love is to receive God's love. And when you receive God's love, you have the resources to love other people. Frankly, I don't know about you, but sometimes it's just, I don't have the energy to love other people, right? I mean, I'm just tired. And the tireder I am, the less loving I am. I can be very unloving if I'm tired or when I'm hangry. It's not a good time, all right? So I've got to be filled up with those resources. I receive Christ's love, and then I'm able, I'm empowered, I'm enabled to give that love out to other people. And, you know, he said it over and over again. John said it over and over again. This is verse 20. I really do not love God if I refuse to love a brother or sister. Oh, I love Jesus. I just love Jesus. But I hate her. I I can't stand him. All right? Well, John's just real plain. He says, no, you don't really love God because you can't love God whom you have not seen when you refuse to love your brother who is 
a brother in Christ whom you plainly do see. Now, I want you to notice one thing about uh, what John has been saying here. He's been talking about loving brothers and sisters in Christ. Now, that doesn't mean we, we refrain from or refuse to love people who are not Christians, but it means that it starts there, right? It starts with love for God and love for Christ. Receive his love. And then the next step out is to love other believers, other genuine believers in Christ. See, John knew what he was talking about because his church was experiencing some division. They even had some people that had left from his church because they had been led astray by false doctrine. And he didn't say hate those people, right? He wanted to stir up this this affection between his people. But before you get to the affection part where you feel love for these people, you simply choose to love them. I'll just go back to what I said earlier. You can love people that you don't even like. And, you know, I was going to go into this long introduction. uh, And one of the things that I said is the reasons that we don't love today is because we have become a very, very selfish people and we're encouraged to be selfish. We, We don't love people because we just really don't like them or we only like them if they're doing what we approve of, right? If they're doing what benefits me, oh, then I love you. That's not love. It's really not. There may be some love mixed in there. And C.S. Lewis goes over this in his book, The Four Loves. Um, He came to the conclusion that what he calls gift love, and that's what we're talking about here, gift love, right? Where you give and give. And the only reason you're going to be able to do that is to receive from Christ. But you give to other people, not because they're giving back to you. But that doesn't mean you don't have give and take relationships with people. Otherwise, you couldn't have any friends, The only people you need to be friends with are people you can trust, people who are loyal, people who understand that they need to be unselfish and you need to be unselfish and there's a give and take that's there. But where does it all start? It starts with love that comes from God and flows through you to brothers and sisters in Christ. Well, you know what? It may be that you like some people in church less than you like some people in the world. It may be. Because you may get along with certain people better than you get along with some of these church folk. Okay? But again, that's still not love. So this is what he's been saying through the entire uh, series here, the, the, this uh, uh, perspective that he has. Okay? Um, So I really don't love God if I refuse to love a brother or sister in Christ, right? So if I love the father, then I'm going to love his children. That's what he said in in five verse one. So today, let's let's just bring it all down. I've, I've been talking for a long time, but let's bring it all down to a conclusion and just give you something very, very practical, okay? Um, if you are holding a grudge, I'm not going to have you raise your hand. I don't want you to do that. But you know if you're holding a grudge against somebody, okay? You need to let it go. Oh, I just can't. Receive Christ's love and let it go. You know, Jesus was hardcore about this. He said, if you don't forgive your brother, God's not gonna forgive you. Now, I still haven't worked that all out with my theology, but I'm just gonna believe what Jesus said, right? So you may have been hurt by this person. You're holding a grudge against that person. You need to let it go right? Um, 
Forgive them. Seek their forgiveness. Choose to love them. And it's not an option. It's Christ's command. I cannot worship if I'm holding a grudge, and God does not accept my worship if I refuse to make the effort to reconcile with someone whom I have offended. Jesus in... um, uh, goes on in Matthew chapter 5, verses 23 and 24. He said, if someone has something against you, go and make it right with them. He said, if you're bringing your gift to the altar, now you don't bring your gifts up here to the altar, okay? I know there are churches that do that. They have like the, the place where you can put your offering and it's like right up in the front. Um, we pass an offering bag and so forth, but you know, your gift is your worship, okay? So if you're sitting here and the music is playing and you can tell that it's beautiful and you can tell there's other people into it, but you're just dead inside, it may be that you're holding a grudge, that you've got unforgiveness lodged right here in the middle of you and that's interfering with your ability to worship. What did Jesus say? If you're going to the altar offering your gift and you remember and the Holy Spirit will cause you to remember and you remember that your brother has something against you, go and make it right with your brother. Make the phone call. If they don't answer the phone, write a letter. I mean, handwrite it. Don't type it. Did you forget how to write? (laughs) How long has it been since you actually wrote a letter, like in your own handwriting? We type everything, right? Write it in your own handwriting. Get a little card. Don't be, you don't have to be wordy, right? Write it in your own handwriting and mail it to them if they won't, you know, talk to you in person, whatever. But do what you can to make it right. Now, their response is not your responsibility. Say their response is not my responsibility. You can't make somebody love you, friend. God doesn't make you love him, but you are responsible for making things right with whomever that is, right? Um, So uh, in the end, once we start with our brothers and sisters in Christ and we make things right with him, them, then we extend out to those that are beyond the church. What begins with our brothers and sisters extends to the world, even our enemies. Jesus said this, You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's where we begin. So I don't know who you're holding, you know, something against today or or what kind of hurt you might have. Um, I've gone a while, but I I think I am going to go ahead and play this piece of video. Um, So right now there is this... uh, There's a war going on in Israel. You know this, right? Horrific things happened on October 7th. And Israel responded. And there have been many people that have died, primarily because these individuals uh, who are uh, behind all of this, a group called Hamas, hide behind innocent people. They dig their tunnels under schools and under mosques and under hospitals. They shoot rockets from the parking lots of of hospitals and so forth, right? They use human beings as a shield. So when you go to war with these people, then there are casualties, right? Um, there There are innocent people that are harmed. We need to be praying for those people. But we say, you know, what should we do? You can pray, but I want to show you an example. I uh, have a, I follow a, a YouTube channel, um, and it's called Surge and Rhoda, I think is her name. 
okay? And they go to all these archaeological sites. They live in Israel. Uh, they come back to the States periodically. I think they have like dual citizenship or something. And so it's been interesting because they're, they're just, they're not archaeologists. They're just really Bible-believing Christians. And they go to these sites and they're like, oh, wow, that is so cool. You know, and they're just like this, this cool couple. You know what I didn't know? He's a Jew and she's an Arab. Watch this little piece of video. Go ahead and see if we can start that. 3,500,000 men and women were called into the reserves. Whole cities were evacuated. Rockets are flying in the south, rockets in the north. Arabs and Jews are fighting. People and families divided. And if you watch the news, it may seem absolutely surreal. And the truth is, when we got back to Israel last month, it indeed was surreal. And to some degree, it still is. But there is something that the mainstream media isn't showing you. Something that you would not expect is happening here. And that is exactly what this video is about. You see, I am Jewish and my wife is Arab. Yeah, that's not very common. Some might think that after 14 years of marriage, we would pretty much start throwing rocks at each other. But no, somehow we live in peace. For, for the most part. Oh. These situations that push you to God, uh, to seek Him, because you have nothing to do in your own hands. So, how is this possible? How could these folks be together when most of Jews and Arabs are divided? These are Arabs and Jews working together. In this circle, the reason is Christ. In fact, this is exactly how Rhoda and I met 15 years ago. Rhoda's dad organized a meeting at his church between Arabs and Jews. And some of you might not know this, but I'm a descendant from a Jewish family. Well, Rhoda of Arab. Yet we're both Israelis. And yes, I had to serve in the military. And when we were getting married, people told us, Jews and Arabs have such different cultures. We don't have anything in common. Your relationship is not going to last. It won't work. In fact, because we were from different races, we could not even legally get married in Israel. Yes, uh, Rhoda and I had to fly to Cyprus to get eloped, then come back to Israel and show them the proper papers that we are already married. And only then Israel recognized our marriage. And then after that, we still did a big wedding ceremony with our pastor. On my side, I had about 30 people in total, most of them friends and family members, mom, dad, brother, cousin. But on the other side, Rhoda had mostly family come. About 800 people. Yes, actually it was more than 800, but the guy at the entrance said he stopped counting at 800. But far as we know, we were the first Israeli marriage between a Jew and an Arab girl. But how is this even possible? How could there be a reconciliation between the two groups of people? So here's what's interesting. After we got married, Rhoda and I moved to the US to do things that we thought people do in the US. Yard sale! Yard sale! But it was really because of my job. At that time, I thought, there's no way our parents would ever be friends. I mean, they are so different. And without me and Rhoda being here, they have no reason to even get together. But then a few months later, after we moved, I get a call from my mom and she says, we had such a great time at Rhoda's parents' place the other day. I was shocked. But apparently, they were meeting on a regular basis, despite us not being in Israel anymore. They would celebrate Jewish and Christian holidays together. They became not just friends, but family. In fact, when my dad had a heart attack, Rhoda's parents were by his bedside for days with my mom the entire time. A few years later, when I asked my dad, how is all this possible that you guys are friends? And I'll never forget what he said. He said, in Christ, there are no differences. We are all one 
in Christ Jesus. Amen. You can, After a few years. You can cut it there. Great couple, but what's the solution? It's the same solution for you. It's Jesus. Amen? Jesus is the Prince of Peace. When we worship him, we can love one another no matter how diverse our backgrounds. 